What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to Done By Law. It's Tuesday the 27th of November and this evening you're with Sam, Gemma and Greg. Um, This Saturday, most of you will know that Victorians voted in an election, a state government election, uh, and it's been widely publicised that the Andrews Labor government has been returned to office in a landslide or a downslide. Um, One thing that has been uh, discussed in the lead up to the election is the fact that uh, the way that Victoria's voting system is set up has led to uh, a number of Uh, people, generally from what we refer to as micro-parties, being elected into the upper house of parliament, uh, even though very small numbers of people actually voted for them. Um, And in the wake of the election, we have a guest with us, William Bow, who is the editor of the Poll Bludger blog, to talk to us about the issue. So welcome, William. Great to be here. Uh, Thanks very much for being on. Maybe as a starting point, uh, William, you could just describe uh, what the the basics of the issue, so um, what we're talking about when we're talking about the two Houses of Parliament uh, and maybe some of the basics of preferential voting? Yeah, well, in Victoria, as in the Federal Parliament, you've got a lower house system which is based on single-member electorates, which are usually won by the major parties. But in the upper house, you have a proportional representation system which presumes to apportion seats out to parties in proportion to the vote that they receive. Now, uh, it's a, that's a, a, an overcomplication in terms of the proportional representation system, but in, in the Australian context, but that, that's the basic idea. So it's extremely difficult, bordering on possible, for the major parties to get majorities in the upper house mm-hmm. uh, these days because they don't get anywhere near 50% of the vote these days. So you then have the question of who are the piggies in the middle between the two major parties. And uh, in, with the way that it continues to be done in Victoria, people are voting in a kind of shortcut procedure where they can vote above the line, and if they do that, their preference order is determined for them by the party that they voted for. And this was the problem we had in the Senate up until 2016, where uh, seats end up getting decided by backroom preference deals between lots of little parties. Uh, increasingly under this system. So that system got reformed for the Senate before the last election, but uh, they're still stuck with it in the Victorian upper house. So in the federal system, it doesn't exist anymore, but we've still got it in Victoria. Yes, uh, the states have been getting rid of it one by one. Uh, New South Wales got rid of theirs in 2003 after funny results began to emerge. It sort of takes a while for them to learn the lesson, and when you know you do get quirky results, uh, action ends up being taken. It happened in South Australia as well, but there hasn't been any progress in reforming the system in Victoria and Western Australia. So, William, um, I believe that Labor opposed those reforms to the federal uh, voting system in 2016. Um, and it, it, do you think that the same thing will uh, continue on here? And what reforms do need to make uh, to happen? Well, I guess in a sense, uh, you know, the Andrews government had four years to reform the system and they did not do it. 
So Labor has form in not changing this system. And uh, to be clear, what the, the, the uh, I thought that it was uh, the Senate reforms were, you know, imperfect but generally well designed, and they had the right idea, which is that it's no longer the case that you hand your preference order over to the party that you choose. Every voter has to actually number boxes up to six on the Senate ballot paper as sort of what direct you to do, and in that case, uh, your uh, preferences go in the way that you consciously direct them. They're not moving around en masse in ways that the person who voted didn't envision because in order to be on top of what was happening, they would have had to have studied some very arcane material on the Electoral Commission website to see what the parties were doing with those preferences. Now, for some reason, Labor is a bit stubborn about changing the system. Um, I'm not convinced that it is in their best interest to be stubborn. My theory is that I think that backroom political operators like Labor State Secretaries enjoy playing this game, that it sort of makes people who are in party administration feel sort of consequential and important. And I think that I don't think there's anything more to it than that. So we saw that happen at federal level. It took a alliance between the Liberal Party and the Greens to get it through the Senate. Labor resisted it. And in Victoria, we're seeing a Labor government who are sort of seems happy to sit on the existing situation. The actual political implications are important to consider here. I think that uh, if they did reform the system in Victoria, say, there'd be more chance that the Labor Party and the Greens between those two parties would have a majority in the upper house. As it is, neither between them have the numbers. So when Labor wants to get contested legislation through the Legislative Council in Victoria... Not only do they need to get the Greens on board, they then have to go cap in hand to a lot of these strange little parties who won a seat, occasionally a second seat, with about 2% of the vote. Perhaps Labor thinks they're better with that setup. I don't know why they would be, though, because it would be more straightforward to just, you know, once you get the Greens on board, you're done, and you don't have to do any further wheeling and dealing. Just getting into the nitty-gritty a little bit, I know there was a concerted campaign for people to... Um, vote below the line in on Saturday, and it, to some extent it worked. Um, and and uh, a lot of people did it, and they were told to um, to go until they knew they didn't know the party and didn't vote for what they didn't know about. But what happened? What happens when people's votes run out in that system? Do they do they, Does their vote not count? Yeah. Well, it has to be stressed here that you know you do have the above the line and the below the line option where it's only if you vote above the line where you're handing your preference over order over to the party that you're voting for and it ends up going God knows where. You can take control of your own vote by voting below the line. In the old Senate system, that meant numbering every single candidate, which you know usually meant about 60 boxes, which you know, even the most dedicated of you know, election fanatic was hesitant to do. In West Victoria, though, it's a lot easier in that they say, oh, no, in order to make it easier to, to do that, you only have to number five boxes. So I think the message finally started to get through at this election. There was that concerted campaign, as you say, and 10% of the population, it seems, were, were voting below the line, which may not sound like much, but it's quite a lot higher than it, than it has been in the past. Now, the issue you're referring to, though, is if you only number five boxes below the line, then there can come a point where your preference can't, your vote can't be pressed passed on as a preference, and in that case, it just disappears in the, from the count. Now, there are some mathematical purists who say that this is sort of disenfranchising people who do this, and therefore, for this reason, we don't want this system. 
I'm not impressed by that argument myself because I don't think having your vote drop out of the the, the uh, count is that great an outrage. Mm. You know, you, you can not vote at all. You know, a lot of people votes don't make it into the count in the first place. I think you ought to have the option available to you to have your vote drop out of the count if the point arrives where you simply don't have an opinion between who's left out of the outstanding candidates. A lot of people feel that way about the major parties. They resent the fact that they are ultimately required to number every box and make a decision as to whether they want Liberal ahead of Labor or vice versa. It seems to me it's perfectly OK to give people the choice of saying, well, I want, don't care, none of the above. Let people who do care decide in that situation. So uh, one of the sort of defensive arguments in favour of the existing system is that every vote does eventually count in the same way. But to me, that's spurious if those votes are reflecting uh, an opinion that the voter doesn't really possess. Mm. It's an opinion that has been handed over to them by the party they voted for above the line and has nothing to do with their conscious democratic choice. Now, William, some people have made a lot of money out of this, and one person in particular uh, is the is Glenn Drury, who is a, also a staffer for Darren Hinch. Is there any conflict here? And, and I know that there are that Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, in particular, has a, had a, a bit to say about this. But is, are there any laws preventing this sort of behaviour? Well, it doesn't seem so. Although Fiona Patton has. Uh launched an action where she's calling for, I think, a bit of a creative reading of the existing statutes to say that this, you know, uh, constitutes some sort of paid interference in the electoral system. Uh, I wouldn't want to sort of presume the legal expertise needed to adjudicate that. But I don't think the view is that it's likely to succeed. Uh, It may well be the case, though, one may very well argue that it should succeed. And if if it is okay for Glenn Drury to do what he does, which is to charge thousands of dollars to small parties to be part of his network. And, uh, William, we might just ask... have. Sorry? Oh, sorry, I think you cut out there for a moment. Uh, Can you hear me now? Are you back online? Yeah. Okay, sorry, all right. Okay, to make the point about Glenn Drury, he is charging small parties thousands of dollars to be privy to his negotiations where all of the minor parties get together and preference each other. So one of them ends up being the winner of the lottery if they all get enough of the vote together, which is increasingly what happens. He also charges a very big success fee if you actually do get elected. So this election has been an absolute bonanza for him because it looks like four, maybe five of his candidates are going to get elected, in which case he stands to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. You may very well think that that kind of, you know, good luck to him if it's legal, but you may well think that it shouldn't be. And this is a uh, loophole in the law that you might want to look at tightening so long as you persist in having an electoral system that allows Glenn Jury to prosper. The more obvious solution to the problem, it seems to me, is to change the electoral system so that that doesn't happen in the first place. Mm. Um, I'm curious how many of the political parties are actually involved with Glenn Jury. How many of them use his services, do you know? Well, at this election, I think there, there would have been about 10 of them because they're, they're, they, they have been, you know, propping up like mushrooms or whatever the metaphor is. They have seen the successes of, you know, people in the Glendory network and increasing number of people want him. So there's a big incentive to form a tiny little party in Victoria and get on the ballot paper. And as that happens, the ballot paper keeps getting bigger and bigger. And as the ballot paper gets bigger, more people are getting confused when presented with the upper house ballot paper. More people are voting in random ways. 
there is a discouragement there to vote below the line if there's just that many boxes there. So the very confusion that this proliferation of minor party causes leads to the kind of voting that, 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 that encourages their cause. So there's been a kind of feedback effect in this system that's resulting in voters being very confused. And I think the election being held in an imperfect way where, you know, you increasingly see the Liberal Democratic Party getting a lot of votes because people are confusing them with the Liberal Party. And by the same token, Labor DLP, as they now call themselves, clearly a lot of their vote is people who think they're voting for the Labor Party. And the bigger and more confusing the ballot paper that is, the more it happens. And the more it happens, the less democratically representative the result of the election is. The more it is to do with confusion and the less it is to do with consciously expressed preference. And what, in terms of reform, where should we be looking? Is there a best practice around Australia? Well, I don't... Realistically, what they did in the Senate seems perfectly OK to me, where the ballot paper says vote one to six boxes above the line and then your preferences go in order of those parties that you select. They do not go beyond that in the direction that any party machine operator decided that they should go. That works perfectly well. They have similar systems in New South Wales and South Australia. And while the ballot paper in the Senate says you have to number six boxes, in reality, if you number one, that's fine. They try to, they're essentially trying to encourage you to, to preference a few more parties and not have your vote just drop out of the count. But the situation there is that they've decided, OK, it's no great tragedy if someone's vote drops out of the elect- out of account. They have the option to keep it in there by numbering all the boxes if they don't do that, and that's not the end of the world. So I think that's the way to do it in the Australian context because it's consistent with Australia's political culture and the way elections have always happened in Australia. It's not too radical a change to the existing system, and I think you do need to be careful of radically changing the electoral system because, uh, as I say, it can lead to voter confusion, and where there is voter confusion, there are kind of democratic questions about the legitimacy of the outcome. Well, William, it's been an enlightening discussion that we've been having and you've, been, you've left us with some real food for thought over what, about what might change over the next few years um, before the next Victorian election. We've been listening to William Bow, who's a sophologist and the editor of the Poll Bludger blog. Um, thank you very much for being on, William. Um, we'll be back after a couple of community announcements talking about a, a fun and wonderful initiative providing people with free coffee and free legal advice. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I'm at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. 
get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Uh, welcome back. You're uh, listening to Done By Law on 3CR, 855 AM. Uh, uh, just before the, our quick announcements, uh, we, we were talking about electoral laws. Uh, we're going to change tack a, a bit now and um, maybe speak about something a bit more fun. Now, the Whittles... That was fun, what do you mean? <laughs> a bit more fun, sorry. Fessilology, I think that's what it was. <laughs> Not everyone's cup of tea or coffee. Uh, now, the Whittlesey Legal Service has been running out of the northern suburbs of uh, Melbourne for uh, over two decades now, uh, servicing uh, the northern suburbs' needs. It's the only uh, CLC that's in the region. Um, so it's a service that's quite familiar with the local area and quite familiar with local issues. Now, uh, the Whittlesey Legal Service has started a, a brand new service called called Espresso Legal, uh, which is an innovative new project providing outreach with coffee. Uh, so to uh, help us discuss this today, we have the principal solicitor from the CLC, Chris Howes. Uh, how are you going, Chris? Good, thanks, Greg. Very well. Th- thanks for joining us. So uh, ex- legal advice and coffee, where did that idea come from? Well, it um, it comes from essentially uh, Henry II, uh, the first Plantagenet king who resolved to take the law to the people. But the coffee part is our <laughs> idea, uh, and uh, we uh, were keen uh, to uh, get into the city of Whittlesea essentially to find people who are vulnerable and can't get to us, and to offer something that the legal profession rarely does, hospitality, a bit of hospitality. Mm. And that's the plan. And so, so how does the project work? Um we, we started off by hiring... Look, we got some funding from the Victorian Law Foundation who thought it was worth a try. And, um, and uh, we, look, in a nutshell, 3,057 women have, um, according to the Bureau of Statistics, contacted one of the three police stations in our region last year, the year 2017, to complain of family violence mm. and, um, and, and offering such a credible story that in each of those 3,057 cases, police were referring on to other agencies like us. And horror of what was unfolding in the region, uh, really, uh, and, and us being the only free legal service available in the entire city of Whittlesea, uh, motivated us to try and get out there and find those people who were suffering from those problems and, 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 and have a a crack at offering legal solutions and we did that as i was saying initially by hiring a van but we've just gone and bought one after having been doing this since may uh for uh, some five months now uh because it has been working so well so uh we're uh, we're now a little more free and um and able to uh widen our range and uh, and that's how we've been doing business um now for the last little while and you mentioned um, family violence was uh, one of the, uh, I guess, the drivers behind um, this project. Yes. Um, is that the only sort of advice that you can get from the the van, or are there other issues that you can um, come and get advice about? We'll speak to anyone who approaches us about any legal issue whatsoever, bearing in mind that we can look at crime, family law and civil law uh, with um, uh, the ability to offer 
uh, casework or ongoing help in uh, in a rather limit, rather more limited uh, uh, set of categories. So, uh, look, infringements is huge. Infringement fines is mm. huge out there. Uh, mental illness, um, as I said, family violence uh, uh, it, itself are both pretty good reasons why people's affairs can get into utter disarray, uh, leading oftentimes to um, many infringements for such as such things as tollways and parking offences, even minor traffic offences, because people, uh, well, people get into trouble, I suppose. Yeah. It might be understandable how that can happen. And uh, and so we can offer concrete help there by getting a matter into the courts to uh, offer evidence as to why there might be good legal reasons as to um, why the court might waive those fines or a good chunk of them. Uh, and family law problems, separation, divorce, uh, uh, motor car accidents, um, uh, debt, uh, young people in trouble, uh, bullied at school, uh, uh, again, um, they're having suffering from the wider difficulties um, of family violence that, uh, or family problems and family separation that affect kids. Mm. Uh, so, so there's rather a wide um, uh, set of characters where we, sorry, categories where we can, as I say, offer concrete legal remedy uh, and help. And have you had a, any um, discussions with other CLCs around Melbourne and Victoria about expanding the program, or are you just focusing on your own for now? Uh, well, we we have we um, uh, we're uh, CLCs um, are pretty well networked, as you know, and uh, so we um, one of the networks is uh, a health justice partnership, which uh, meets in a building in town, and uh, we get together regularly. Um, a bunch of CLCs who are interested in the crossover between legal remedy and health problems. People who are sick, especially people who are gravely sick, oftentimes fall foul of the law as well, and vice versa. So if we can... Um, so we're looking at ways that um, kind of crunching both problems, and so we've told them about this. And uh, uh, the um, uh, and essentially to be able to go to a group of uh, uh, people who run hospitals or are dealing with uh, as social workers inside hospitals or health clinics uh, and other lawyers and say... We're just getting our hands dirty by taking this van out and saying to people, "Come to us and um, uh, and grab a cup of coffee. We'll make it." You know, we are lawyers, but we're the ones who are going to buy the milk, the full cream, the light, the soy, and we're going to make it ourselves. And it's that's not particularly easy for us. We have to do a very <laughs> course to sort it out. And the milk's the key to get that right. And um, and you know, and here's a cappuccino. So. As I say, when one thinks of lawyers, when the public, especially someone out there who might be in trouble, thinks of a lawyer, what normally comes to mind might be someone helpful, might be someone astute, might be someone who can get into a courtroom and talk, but the picture does not generally include modesty and does not generally include hospitality. And if we can offer that, and um, and uh, and by the way, if we can offer that on a winter's morning where we're the ones in the beanies and the bluey jackets and the scarves we look like them we look like dags ourselves and so the offer of the coffee on the winter's morning says to them we're one of you talk to us tell us your story if there's a legal problem let's try and crunch it let's find a solution let's open a file at the legal service or let's refer you to somebody out there who can help then people do come and i think that's what has been delightful to take to other CLCs in that forum uh, with the uh, Health Justice Partnership and in other places also. Chris, any complaints about the coffee? Is it any good? Uh, look, it's great. Mine <laughs> is not flash at all. My my uh, colleague, Moses, a guy called... His name's Moses. He's 
from the Philippines, and he uh, uh, just does it rather better than me. So we we will tag team, but he's mostly on coffee. I'm mostly on on uh, advising, taking instructions with a notepad and a pencil, and um, and uh, and the coffee's all right. I can say that it's fine. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for coming on, Chris. We've been talking to Chris Howes, who's the principal legal uh, principal uh, solicitor. Sorry, Chris, uh, from the Whittlesea Community Legal Centre, talking to us about uh, free coffee and legal advice. Um, and before Chris, we were talking to William Bow, who's a sophologist, talking to us about uh, election laws. And I'm sure there's some uh, a website that we can put up for the van on our Twitter awesome. and Facebook. Yeah. Thank you very much, folks.